I'm really glad to see all of you here this morning. Whenever Bob is away and one of us stands up here to preach, your fear is always that nobody's going to be sitting there. So thank you for, <laughs> thank you for being here today, today. And I hope that you hear God speaking through me. And I hope you don't hear me. About a month ago, Build-A-Bear had a fantastic promotional idea. They decided that they would offer their beloved line of build-your-own stuffed animals at the unbelievably low price of pay your age. It was only good if you were, like, younger than 18, because if you're my age, who the heck wants to pay for a $50 Build-A-Bear? But it meant that if your child was two years old, you'd pay $2. It'll be great, they said. People will love us, they said. Well, what happened, though, was that all the Build-A-Bear franchises were totally unprepared for the response of their adoring public. Some stores had to close because they ran out of supplies. They ran out of the stuffing, and I guess the little skins, too. Some stores had to close because they caused a public safety concern when the lines stretched out of the stores and into and through the parking areas of the malls in which they were located. They were completely overwhelmed. Have you ever been completely overwhelmed? If you think about it, there are lots of ways that you can end up in that condition. You can be overwhelmed with too much to do, like I was a couple of weeks ago. I had VBS prep. Owsley County Prep, building renovation details, and a sermon to write, and it all was crammed into two and a half weeks. Not the smartest decision on my part, but while I was overwhelmed with too much to do, God was overwhelming me with people to help me do it. Sometimes I must have looked like this, because people said, do you need something? And I did. And sometimes God sent people like Jason Nagels, who just appeared in the commons area one day when we needed help with the um, AV stuff for VBS. And Caroline Johns, who appeared out of nowhere to say, what can I help you do? And I sent her on a Costco run for Owsley County. And then Laura Wirt finished the rest of it, which was great. And Jody Seitz, who ended up teaching all of the Vacation Bible School music classes because Philip was called away with his mom, that's how one of the ways that God overwhelms us with his presence is being there when we don't even realize that we have a need in providing for us. There are lots of other ways that you can be overwhelmed. You can be overwhelmed with relief. Students, like when you actually did better on the test than you thought you would, even if you didn't study. Or when the news from the doctor is better than what you expected. You can be overwhelmed with grief at the loss of a dream or the death of a loved one. You can be overwhelmed with fear, with gratitude, with depression, with joy, with anxiety, or for some of us, with stuff. If you'll take your Bibles or your phone or your app or whatever you're going to use to read Scripture, or you can read along with me on the screens, we're going to read a story from John chapter 6, and it's a familiar story about being overwhelmed. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. When Jesus went up on a mountainside, he sat down with his disciples. 
the Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, Philip, because he already knew, had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to even have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. And I'm going to interject. It doesn't say that there were women and children, but there probably were. So there were more than 5,000 people who were there in that place. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Think about it. What if you were just hanging out with your friends and suddenly 5,000 people showed up? And then your best friend, the person you most look up to, turns to you and says, Hey, how are you going to feed them? Immediate, deer in the headlights, overwhelmed. Notice, though, what John says about Jesus' question to Philip. He, Jesus, asked this only to test him, Philip, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. We, my friends, are faced daily with the same test that Philip faced. The story of the loaves and the fishes is often relegated to the cursory treatment it receives in children's classes where we learn that a boy shared what he had, whether he wanted to or not, it doesn't say he wanted to. Jesus performed a miracle and everybody was fed. The end. That's a good tidy lesson about more than... How about this? A good tidy lesson about being tested on sharing, right? But what if... What if the lesson is about more than sharing? What if instead of the simple reading, we see something deeper? Something deeper about ourselves, about feeding who comes, and about making the table bigger rather than smaller. Philip's response to Jesus could be one that was born out of fear. Fear of not having enough. Maybe fear of disappointing his friends. Fear of looking foolish, perhaps. And wouldn't we respond the same way? I am rather certain that my own response would probably have been less reasoned than Philip's. It was probably something more like laughing or a good eye roll, which I'm not above, or a snarky, you are kidding me, right? We have this human propensity to live an either-or kind of life. In this case, the fact the, or the idea that either we don't have enough or we do Bob talked last week about the idea of scarcity versus abundance, and this is what he meant to a degree. This disciple, Philip, was working from a fear-based scarcity, we don't have enough mindset. And because Philip was working from that mindset, he had a hard time seeing the bigger point that Jesus was likely trying to make. 
Here are more than 5,000 people. They're all hungry. And it's not just for physical food. Though they were hungry and they were in a place where they couldn't buy food. So how are we going to feed them what they want and need? As much as they needed that physical food, they also needed the spiritual nourishment that came from God present among them. I was sitting with a children's class this morning, and they were looking at the same passage. And one of the teachers asked one of the students, why were the people there? Why did the 5,000 people just appear out in the wilderness somewhere? And the answer was, in the scripture, they had seen the signs that Jesus had performed, and they came to see what it was all about. They didn't come to eat. They came to see what Jesus was all about. And instead of welcoming that, Philip responded with a fear response, I don't have enough. I think that we, many times, do the same as Philip. We're afraid we don't have enough. We don't have enough time. We don't have enough energy. We don't have enough food or enough money or sometimes even enough God. So we make excuses and we ignore the divine and the sacred that's right in front of us, which is what Philip did. God was standing right in front of him And all he could think about was, I don't have enough money to buy food. We are often too readily overwhelmed with what the world tells us about ourselves than what God tells us about ourselves. The world around us says, you need more. You need more clothes and you need more shoes. You don't have any value if you don't own a big house and if you don't go on fancy or any vacations. You need more likes on Facebook and followers on Instagram. Writer and speaker Sharon Blessard shares evidence to undergird this idea. She says, Recent scientific research suggests humans are naturally geared toward empathy and generosity. It's how our brains are wired. It would seem that selfishness, greed, and a scarcity mentality are largely the product of conditioning and teaching. In our predominant Western cultural narrative, for example, we're told that the person who has the most and the best is the winner. We're told to get all that we can for ourselves because there may not be enough for everyone, especially if we don't take care of number one, which is us. Marketers spend billions, with a B, of dollars, convincing us that we need more, newer, and better stuff, no matter what the cost to our neighbors, our planet, and our overall well-being. We're conditioned to see ourselves as lacking and needy rather than as blessed and having enough. In short, Many of us are being sold a lie and consuming it without question. So, based on what Sharon Blessard said, why do we keep buying this lie, hook, line, and sinker? What if instead of either we have enough or we don't, what if we work from a place of and? A place that said, we have enough and we're going to share. What if instead of hoarding what we have, We live in a countercultural way that reeks of abundance. You know that word reek? Smells, gives off a smell that's big and everybody can smell it. What if we lived in a countercultural way that reeks of abundance, of something so unfamiliar to the rest of the world that they follow the scent to its source? The source is Christ's spirit within us. Richard Rohr who is a prolific contemporary contemplative theologian. That's a whole lot. He lives now, he thinks a lot, and he thinks a lot about God. Has this to say about the connection between what we believe 
and what we live. Our spirituality is inseparable from the way we live in the world. Meaning, if we have Christ as the center of our spirituality, we will live our lives reflecting that. Rohr goes on to draw a deeper parallel that allows us to see the story in John that we just read in a different light, one which helps us view the abundance as physical and so much more. Rohr says, Jesus often used domestic settings to rearrange the social order. Nowhere was that truer than with the meal, with whom, where, and what he ate. This is still true today, more than we might imagine. Jesus' constant use of table relationships is perhaps his most central re-ritualization of what family means. And make note that he's always trying to broaden the circle. Jesus didn't want his community to have a social ethic. He wanted it to be a social ethic. Their very way of eating and organizing themselves was to be an affront to the system of dominance and power. They were to live in a new symbolic universe especially symbolized by what we now call open table fellowship. In all cultures, sharing food is a complex interaction that symbolizes social relationships and defines social boundaries almost more than any other daily event. Whom you eat with defines whom you don't eat with. Think about that in terms of a middle school lunch table in the cafeteria. Who you eat with defines who you don't eat with. Certain groups of people eat certain kinds of food, and certain people eat in certain places. And through our choices and behavior at table, we name and identify ourselves and others. Jesus already showed us in practice and in ritual that the spiritual, social, political, and economic move together as one. In fact, that's what makes something spiritual that is whole, the whole of something. It combines the sacred and the secular, matter and spirit. So, now extending Rohr's idea a little bit, in essence, that big meal, that big table that was set for more than 5,000 people, that was part of the larger picture of who is included in God's plan. It wasn't just some. It wasn't just a select few. It was for everyone who was there. Jesus knew what he was doing, and Scripture said so. He was including people, not excluding them. He was meeting physical needs and spiritual needs. He was engaging his disciples, his closest followers, to join him in the process. He was bridging the gap between heaven and earth. He was the abundance that we so desperately want and run after. Our mission partners, the folks at Family Tree, live this Christ-present abundance every day in the Enderley Park neighborhood of Charlotte, North Carolina, and they're going to be joining us today um, on their way to mission in D.C., and they'll be eating in our um, Family Life Center in a little bit, so if you encounter them, please make them welcome. There at Family Tree, they practice an open table and host community meals. They frequently experience firsthand the miracle of multiplying food for all that arrive at their door because they never know who's going to show up. I once heard a phrase from them that is stuck in my mind and continues to poke me in the backside at times. It's short, but packed with a charge and a challenge. It says, live simply that others may simply live. 
this, well, simple phrase makes me face the choices I make every day with what I hope is an abundance mindset of one who not only knows the way of Christ, but bends to it as well. Bending my will to Christ's is not an easy thing. Knowing and doing are two different things, my friends. The knowing and the talking about the knowing, those come all too easily. The doing, however, many, many days, it's an altogether different story. And while we're trying to resist that lie we're being sold, and it can mean living simply from a material possession standpoint, I believe it also can mean so much more from a spiritual practice standpoint. In Charlotte, it sure means more. When we are overwhelmed by the boundless generosity of God's great and unending love and grace towards us, we should be living every aspect of our lives through the filter of abundance rather than scarcity. We see this kind of abundance mindset in the early church, where those first Christians sold what they had and redistributed it so that everybody had enough. Some people today, especially here in the capitalist West in the United States, would brand this kind of living as socialism. But they didn't see it that way. They were just living the Jesus way. It was countercultural then, and it's countercultural now. The early church showed over and over what it was made of. People who were different, reborn as something other than what they had been before. And when there were needs in the community beyond theirs, like the people who were just on the outside of their Christian community, like when a plague struck the Roman cities where they lived, they didn't stop to ask who was a card-carrying member of their particular denomination. They didn't ask their leaders, hey, I haven't been part of you for long, can I still help somebody? They didn't ask who committed what particular sin and they wouldn't help them. And they didn't ask the person, are you going to follow the same way I do if I help you? They just did the right thing. They did what Jesus would have done. They loved first at a great risk to their own personal safety, giving care out of a compelling sense of abundance instead of making a decision to act from a sense of scarcity and hoarding their help and their health. The scripture from Ephesians that Kate read for us earlier, that's intimately tied to this idea of choosing to live from abundance instead of scarcity. How can we, who claim and proclaim this Jesus, who extends love and grace in a way that verse 20 says, is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. That power is in us. So how can we not be filled to overflowing with a desire to help others know this same love and power also? We say, by claiming the name of Christian, that we are the presence of Christ in this world. This presence should be so completely compelled by Christ's overwhelming presence in us that it is completely compelling those who don't know Christ to flock to him like those families flocked to build a bear. Like those 5,000 plus people flocked to Jesus that long ago day. If we truly open our hearts, our minds, our hands, our bank accounts, our borders, our homes, our tables, this table, if we open everything that we are to that divine Christ love, the abundance of that love will be spilled out 
overcoming the fear of not having enough, not just in us, but in those with whom we interact. We'll make the table of Christ bigger at every opportunity. And in that pouring out and making bigger, we don't lose anything, but we gain everything. It's a hard road to walk. We saw it in Philip. We see it in ourselves every day. But take heart and be of good courage, my friends. For as Paul writes in Ephesians, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Amen and amen.